It's our blessing this morning to hear God's word from uh, disciple, Jesus' disciple, Matthew. This is from the sixth chapter of Matthew, verses 25 through 33, and this is Matthew quoting Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I got several texts from you guys this week, uh, Wednesday night or Thursday morning, and and several of them were something like, I can't wait to see how you're going to talk about the World Series in your sermon. I can't wait to see. And I'm not going to do that. I... I'm absolutely not going to talk about <laughs> the Rangers this morning. That would be crazy. I, I, you guys don't know me that well if you think that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm definitely not going to talk about how, you know, it, it, I, just like every kid you know, playing baseball, I was imagining myself, you know, winning the World Series for the Rangers as a, you know, all-star second baseman. I'm definitely not going to talk about that. I'm definitely not going to talk about how, you know, as Beth and I first started dating, we found that we, we loved baseball so much together. And, and, and she knows more about baseball than, than most people I know, guy or girl. And, and, and watching her talk about, hey, they should have turned that double play. And why are they pulling that reliever already? I was like, wait a second. She knows every Ranger player. This is incredible. It's pretty attractive. Uh, definitely not going to talk about that. Definitely, definitely not going to talk about how we cried like babies on Wednesday night. It's finally seeing something that we've been hoping for uh, all of our lives, really. So, so definitely not. So you guys were so, so far off if you thought I was going to do that uh, this morning. So, uh, because there's somebody else I, I want to talk about. And, and, and I need to know if any of you know who this guy is. Raise your hand if you have any clue who that is. Nobody? Okay. Well, if you don't, I didn't really know who he was either. But I guarantee you that he has impacted your life. Some might say for better, 
some, most of us would, might say for the worst. Let me tell you what, you, what uh, uh, or let's see what you think if he made your life better or not. song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy, in every life we have some trouble, but when you worry you make it double, don't worry, be happy, don't worry, be happy now. There's so much here that I want to say. Um, first, yes, you probably remember, that's Bobby McFerrin, uh, who, by the way, you musicians know, is actually a Hall of Fame, not pop singer, but what? Anybody know? Jazz musician. He's a jazz musician and a composer for, like, the San Francisco Orchestra. This guy had no business making a pop song, but he did. But he's one of the most talented musicians in, in, of the last 50 years. Um, so he's not necessarily a one-hit wonder, but this is the only song, unless you're really into jazz, uh, of his that you've ever, ever heard. And second, yes, that was Robin Williams in the video, in case you were wondering. That was a young Robin Williams dancing with Bobby McFerrin. The 80s were so weird, right? M- music videos were so weird. Uh, third, while I have to apologize, because uh, I know this Uh, song will be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You have to appreciate the genius of it. Did you know that every sound in that song was made by Bobby? There was not an instrument in that entire song. Everything in that was either him humming or clapping or snapping or or singing or, or whatever. It's the first song to ever reach number one in the charts that was truly a cappella. It was an a cappella song, and it reached number one, 1988. Um, but back to my original picture. <clears throat> that guy that I showed you, uh, he was a, all you can really say was a spiritual leader from India, and his name is Mare Baba. Mare Baba. I don't know if you've ever even heard of him either, but he is the philosopher, if you will, uh, who had the idea and the, coined the phrase, don't worry, be happy. And so it was in New York City, Bobby McFerrin was walking down the street, and he saw a poster of that guy, and it said, don't worry, be happy. And he thought, well, that's cute and simple. I, I bet I can make a song about that. And he went out of his jazz world and created a he didn't think it would be a popular song. It just it kind of took a life of its own. But he, he wrote a whimsical song, if you will, just to cheer people up. Now, I don't recommend it, but if you were to get on YouTube, watch that video, and then scroll through the comments, you will find people who say this song changed their life. 
Like people who said, I had come to the end, my life was over, and then this song changed everything. I was in this pit of despair, and now I have found peace and happiness on earth because of Bobby McFerrin's song. I, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, okay? Uh, but this, real, this song really falls flat uh, as a pathway to happiness. To just say, don't worry, be happy, isn't really the solution. It's not really uh, the key. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the way we ought to think of it. It's, to me, this song is really more of a stick your head in the sand and be oblivious uh, to the world type of philosophy. Um, and, and some cynics claim that that's what Christianity is well. Some cynics would say, well, Christianity is no different than Bobby McFerrin saying, don't worry, be happy. So this morning, um, I think we're going to see some of Paul's philosophy on how Christianity can bring hope and happiness in a world of anxiety and sadness. And, and I'm going to argue this morning that, 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 that Paul's message and Bobby McFerrin's message are nothing alike. And, and that, in fact, Christianity has the only real message of hope and comfort to be found in the world. Let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Father, would you help us as we, we hear your Word on, on such an important thing, something that we all deal with. And may, we, may we hear your truth, not uh, a catchy, simple philosophy, but hope from the everlasting God. Guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in Philippians chapter 4. I guess this is week 14, if I can do the math. Uh, sorry, week 14, is that what I said? Week 14, chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers... And sisters, you can put, that's a generic one. It could be sisters too there. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, we have been in uh, Philippians and, and this concept of joy for 13 or 14 uh, weeks, I think. Um, and so we've now come to the last uh, chapter of the book. Uh, Paul has been talking about the big theme of, of how the gospel changes everything. And so I want to remind you that Paul is writing this letter from prison, and he's not sure if he's going to be executed soon. 
He is writing to some of his closest friends who are also going through a very difficult time. He doesn't know if he will ever see them again. And so, so, so many think, hey, maybe Paul is just throwing in like as many last piece of advice kind of things he can think of. It's like when you're getting off the phone with your kids. Hey, don't forget to do this and don't forget that. And hey, put gas in your car. And hey, don't, you know, is that what, maybe that's what Paul is doing here. Just throwing in everything he can think of to his friends who he may never see again. But, but I agree with, with most scholars that say, really, it's not just a bunch of random stuff that he's kind of throwing in here at the end. Uh, what, what I think here is, is that he is going to give us the antidote for anxiety this morning. Our, our, our passage couple, covers a, a couple of different things, and so we're going we're gonna to look at them and, and kind of work our way through, through the different verses. Um, and so if you go back and let's look at, at, at verse 1, we saw it. Uh, Gary mentioned it a little bit last week, and it's, it's really a, a, a cool verse. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and sisters, who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Can you feel the affection there? <laughs> How many times can he say that in, in such a way to we, we hear it? He is, he is very honest about his feelings. He loves these people. He longs for these brothers and sisters. He, he calls them his beloved again. One cool thing I, I want to mention is that he, he calls them his joy and his crown. His joy and his crown. And, you know, what does that mean necessarily? He has, he has joy in their relationship, right? He, he gets joy from, from having a relationship with them. He, he gets joy from seeing them grow in Christ and, and grow as a church. When we hear the word crown, um, our, our tendency is to think of like royalty, right? You get, you get a, a crown as a king or a queen. Is Paul saying that he's a king now because of them? That's kind of what I used to think it was, what he was meaning. Maybe he's achieved some, sta- some status because of, of them, right? He, he's now royalty or something. But, but that's not the word here. That's not what he is saying. I want you to think about the old, you know, the old Olympics, if you will. Um, you know, the victors of games, the victors of tournaments, the victors of, of the Olympics, they would receive this, like a victory wreath, right? A, a, a olives branches or loyal, laurel branches, and, and it would get put on their heads. It was a, a victory wreath. It's, it's a specific word that's a little bit different than crown, and that's what Paul is talking about here. What he is saying is that the church at Philippi is, is emblematic of a trophy. Um, he, he's striving to see them uh, with him at the finish line. He, he can point to them and say, look, I have, I have labored for them and with them for the sake of the gospel. And, and because he loves them. And, and that's really the heart of, of, of a pastor and, and the heart of a friend. He's thinking about them. He can't wait to see them at the finish line and where they all get this crown, this, this victor's wreath. And he's saying, look, I, I've been that. I've been striving with you. I've been striving for you. And, and that's what we're all looking forward to. He, he wants to know Christ as his goal in life. And, and it's all, his other goal is to help others know and stand firm in the gospel of Jesus at the finish line of eternity. 
And so that's, that's the, the, the vision we should be seeing here of Paul talking about this, this crown. Okay, moving on to verses uh, 2 and 3. It says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So unfortunately, we don't have all the information we would like about this situation. And, and it's, it's unique because there are other places where Paul does get very, very specific uh, about, uh, you know, conflict in a church or, you know, about an issue. You know, think about 1 Corinthians where he's getting on to people for some specific actions and saying, hey, tell so-and-so to knock it off. Tell him to stop doing the thing that he's doing. Uh, or, or, you know, the issue with like Philemon. Hey, Here's a, here's a specific thing I want to talk about, this conflict that's taking place. But this situation, however, he leaves vague. And the main reason we think that is because he's, he's not condemning any behavior here. Like, this person is doing that and that is wrong. He, he's not trying to correct a specific sin necessarily. It's probably not a situation where, where one or both of the women are in, like, blatant disobedience um, or, or where one has done something especially wrong and the other is okay. It doesn't seem like that's, that's what we're dealing with. It, it seems to be an issue where he's got these, both of these friends and they are in a disagreement. They're having a disagreement. And, and, and it's a disagreement that seems to be having a, a ripple effect throughout the rest of the church. Now, I know that's never happened in this church before, uh, where there was a dispute, where there was a disagreement, um, but I, I, I've been a part of those in other churches and other places, and, and, and they can be devastating. Now, of course, I'm, I'm kidding. Kishwaukee Churches uh, has been around since 1844. There have probably been, you know, too nu- numerous to count issues of, of people who just couldn't get along about something about something that some, some group thought this way and the other group thought this way. And, and there, there became the ripple effect of, you got, have you got to take a side? Have you got to, what, what, what are we going to do about it? And there's just sort of this unsettled uh, feeling throughout the whole church as a result. You, you, I'm sure you've experienced it. You, you may have been a part of one of those uh, where, where you, you felt that tension, you felt that in a disagreement. Maybe you were part of, of one of those in the, in the past. So but let me just tell you what I appreciate, you know, having done, been through some of these. Let me, I'll tell you what I appreciate, but appreciate about this kind of odd moment in Scripture. First, I want you to notice the how, how gentle and respectful Paul is here. Experts tell us that, that in this culture, for, for Paul to address them by name wasn't, in fact, bold or rude or a calling them out, as, as we might say today. In, in fact, it was honoring and respectful. It would have been more dishonoring to them if he had l- left them unnamed and just said, hey, those two ladies, tell them to f- figure it out. If he'd have said it that way, it would have been much more disrespectful. But him calling them by name was saying, I know you and I care about you and I know the situation. It was an honoring thing here. Now, still, I'm sure that one day when we meet these two women in eternity, uh, they will roll their eyes that their names were, you know, forever linked 
uh, in a church dispute, you know, all these years. I'm, I'm sure glad that my name's not in Scripture about telling me to figure it out, right? But Paul makes it very clear that, that they are both partners with him in the gospel and that they are both very dear to him. And, and then notice what he says is the solution. What does Paul say the solution is? He doesn't say, here are the issues and the specifics on how, and, and here's whose side I'm on. He doesn't say that. He basically says, look, you're both in the book of life. You are both sisters in Christ. That designation ought to be able to move you out beyond this disagreement. Your eternal sisters in Christ. That takes precedent over whatever disagreement is going on here. And so he just simply says, agree in the Lord. He doesn't just say agree. He says agree in the Lord, which means a whole lot more, doesn't it? Because of the Lord, we find agreement. Because of the Lord, because he has carried our burdens, and because he has torn down this wall of hostility, guess what? We can have peace in the Lord. Doesn't mean we have to be best friends anymore. Doesn't mean we have to agree, but we can agree in the Lord. Work it out. And, and, and notice who he puts the responsibility on. Both of them. You know, modern counseling um, you know, focuses on the wrongdoer coming to the offended and making things right. right? That's, that's the pattern that we see most of the time kind of put. It, the wrongdoer has a responsibility to come to the offended and make things right. But can I just say quickly that Jesus coming to earth changes things. It changes the rules, if you will. You see, Jesus was the offended, wasn't he? Jesus was the offended. We were the wrongdoers. And he came and he offered grace before anybody could even try to come up with a resolution to fix it or to, to even offer, ask for forgiveness. Jesus came. He was the offended, and he came. So that changes the rules on all of this. I, I love that Jesus gives instructions on, on, on things like this. And, 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 and he, he tells us as well that both parties are responsible. Matthew 5 says that you need to go and offer forgiveness when you remember those that you have wronged. So if you remember somebody that you have wronged, you have a responsibility to go and, and ask for forgiveness, to make that right. But Matthew 18 tells us that we should seek out those who have wronged us and to try to reconcile with them. If somebody has wronged us, we should go to them and try to reconcile. So what's our responsibility? Agree in the Lord to fix it. If you have been wronged, and we all have by somebody, if you have been wronged, you don't just get to sulk around feeling bad for yourself, waiting for that person to come and make it right. You don't get to do that in the gospel. You don't get to do that because of Jesus. And if you have hurt someone, Jesus says it's up to you as well to go and make that right. We don't sit around waiting for a perfect apology, and we don't sit around just hoping others forget about it and move on. Right? The responsibility goes to both. 
The gospel calls us to pursue unity and to pursue forgiveness. Always. Peace is always the will of the gospel. And and I know how hard this is, by the way. I've been on both sides. I've been the wronged and I've been the wrongdoer. And I know it's just hard. Either it's hard to acknowledge wrong, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, for, to pursue forgiveness when you've been wronged as well. And so only by relying on the Holy Spirit with the truth of the gospel are we able to seek peace and unity. But that's what Paul is saying here to these friends of his. Hey, agree in the Lord. You don't get to be prideful anymore because of Jesus. You've got to figure out how to agree in the Lord. Okay, last piece, which is verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so let me just start by saying that this topic, this piece, is huge. The issue of anxiety is possibly the biggest emotional problem in our society today. A recent survey from Forbes magazine reported that 32% of Americans reported symptoms of anxiety and depression in 2023. That's a third. That's a third of the United States. For people under 24, that's, that, that number is more like 49% or half. Anxiety and depression in 2023. Most experts say that we are living in the midst of a true mental health epidemic. And I, and I just can't cover all of that today. Um, and so next week's sermon is going to be a continuation of, of this little piece because there's just so much more to see here that Paul has to say for us. But as I said at the beginning, I don't think Paul is just giving a a random collection of advice in this part. I I think he is intentionally giving us a gospel-centered prescription for anxiety. So the first thing I think he is saying in this passage is that the overall antidote for anxiety is to have the living God as an active part of your life. Now, I know that sounds, well, duh, right? That sounds a little obvious, right? Now, it's not any earth-shattering news, probably. And so while that might sound like a given, let me just remind us that God is the only one who has the ability, the true ability, to vanquish anxiety. He's the only one who can really do that. No self-help book or coping strategy will, will, will do None of those things are, are, are adequate. You see, I, th- I think too often we, we misplace our trust in things other than God. Because if we go back and even go to, go to the definition, what is anxiety? What is anxiety? It, it is afraid, right? It is being afraid of losing something, that something will be out of our control Something will happen that we don't want to happen and trying to hold on for dear life. That's what anxiety is. And that, and that something that we are afraid of losing too often is, is a part of our, our core, right? Part of our heart foundation. 
Something that's at the center of our gravity. And we all do this. Every one of us in this room is guilty of doing this. But, but we put things like finances or family or love or knowledge or our health in misplaced importance. As the center of our gravity. These things can easily become our heart foundation. And I'll just remind us, all of us, and I'm speaking to myself, these are finite things that cannot withstand that type of trust. They just can't withstand it. It's not solid enough ground for us to put our trust in them. Tim Keller, in in his book, Counterfeit Gods, has an incredible quote that I want to share this morning. I think it's up on the screen I don't want to read it. It says, Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. Notice, not just an idol, but an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. So I'll say again, we are all guilty of this. Everyone in this room constructs idols. And and we make things more important than they ought to be. And we make them foundational to our being more than they ought to be. And, And Paul wants to remind us, the more that we make God our center, the better we are equipped for combating anxiety. Remember that Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And so that makes Jesus the only thing that is able to handle our trust, our hopes, our dreams, all of who we are. Only Jesus can handle that. Nothing else can. A loved one will let you down. A finances will let you down. A home, a job, a career, a reputation, all of those things will let you down. They can't withstand that type of trust. Only Christ can. And so the last thing I want to mention for, for this week is, is, is what I'll call our second prescription. And he says it a different way, but I'll say it as having your joy in the Lord. Having your joy in the Lord. Notice Paul starts by just simply saying rejoice. Rejoice. Have joy. Now, this is very different than Bobby McFerrin simply saying, don't worry, be happy. Because that, that has no legs or foundation. It, it's just an illusion or escapism, maybe. And, and, and also, Paul isn't just saying we should never be sad or we should never I- experience grief or loss. Paul's not saying that at all here. And, and I'm so glad for that because... You know, some have suggested that Christians should just be Stoics. And Stoicism is a, a, a philosophy that, that says, hey, feelings and emotions, they really only make you weaker. Right? Th- those are weaknesses. Uh, the way to succeed in life is to not feel that way about anything, to just you know, stiff upper lip and just move past things. That's, you know, be apathetic towards stuff and be stronger than that. That's Stoicism. Paul's not saying that. When we read this letter, Paul has expressed all kinds of emotions, including sorrow. He says he wept over those who rejo- reject Christ. 
right? He says, I'm, I'm longing to see you all. I miss you. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I, he, he's expressed all these kinds of emotions in this letter. Paul is clear that, that biblical joy is full of all kinds of emotions. So what does he mean by rejoicing? Well, again, I want to go to Tim Keller for help on this because he's just so smart and he's so good. So here's another quote from the same book. He says, Rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and, and, and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. So how is Paul telling us that God can deal with our anxiety? He is saying that we focus our thoughts on Christ's majesty and mercy until our hearts are convinced that he really is all that we need. Our heart can become convinced when we hear that beautiful truth. We're, we're going to stop just with these two things this morning, but, but I just I, I want to reinforce what Paul has said. He's helping us to see that there is only one who is worthy of our trust. Only one that we should live for. Living for other things Inevitably, inevitably brings worry and anxiety. And he has said that when we rejoice in the Lord, other things begin to fade away. It's so simple. God has called us to have joy, joy in and through all the other emotions that we have. In the midst of joy, like joy that I experienced this week, it's okay Right? We can rejoice in the Lord when we feel emotions of happiness and, and the circumstances are great. But I, in other sporting events this weekend, I was at the Stillman football game this Saturday, yesterday. And that was painful. That hurt. Right? We experience it's okay to have that emotion, but we still can rejoice in the Lord in all of those things. In, in, in our strugglings, in our joy, in our pain, in our suffering— there's a Christ joy that's bigger than all of it, that is a true foundation that we're called to have. Joy because we belong to Jesus. Joy because the only one who is eternally trustworthy and who loves us no matter what has called us his own. And that's our source and our foundation for joy. Let's pray. Father, we are so <clears throat> thankful that in Christ you have given us a, a, a true firm foundation, a true thing that we can put our, our trust and our hope and hopes and dreams in. And, and that as we go through the, the gamut of emotions, none of those emotions change the solid truth that we belong to Christ. And because of that, we can have hope. Help us in our day-to-day lives embrace that truth. Hold on to it. Cling to it as you cling to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.